And then in the, 2000, uh, the 21st century, we saw the shift move from the culture being neutral about the church to the culture being negative about the church. Now, if you know history and you know church history, when a culture moves towards a negative feeling towards the church, that path usually doesn't end well. That path usually heads towards some pretty gnarly situations. Uh, you see, for instance, in uh, Russia and in France during their revolutions, how the church was under some firm persecution from the state and from the culture by and large. And that Christians that survived those persecutions were the Christians who saw it coming. The Christians who were watchful, who paid attention, who knew the kind of things that was going on in academia and the kind of things that were being said in the, in the papers and in the tracts that were being distributed and the newsletters that were going around. And they knew, guys, we need to knuckle down and work out what does it mean to be Christians in a negative culture. And this is exactly what Peter has for us today. He is showing us what the church looks like in crisis. A church looks like when we may find ourselves more and more moving further and further down that continuum of negativity. Now, I'm not trying to be alarmist or say that next year everything's going to come crashing down. I don't believe that. But things will get tough. And we can make it through. In fact, we will make it through. But we need to be the kind of community and the kind of church that the Bible says that we ought to be. And so I've got three points that I want to share with you guys today. My first point is a world in crisis. Number two, the church through crisis. And number three, the unshakable dominion of Christ. Now, these three points, normally, you're probably used to in my sermons, each of those three points being roughly the same length. It's not going to be that way today. it's, It's all over the place. So just bear with me. Uh, I did do it for a reason. So we're going to start in verse 7 with my first point, a world in crisis. And Peter says this, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What a beginning. The end of all things is at hand. And to the churches that Peter is writing, they have really begun to feel the refiner's fire in persecution. They've experienced many hardships at the hands of the Jews, and they have experienced many things at the hands of the Romans. And they're now being warned by Peter that something even worse is on its way. The end of all things is at hand. Now that phrase, is at hand, literally means in a short while. It's usually used to mean in a couple of hours or like about to, like it's just about to happen. Maybe the next day, something is happening really quickly. And the early church had this firm belief that God's judgment would come to this earth very soon. In fact, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, he warns the disciples of the end coming, that wars are coming, great tribulations, persecutions, many Christians are going to be put to death. Darkness is going to be coming upon the world. The stars will fall from heaven and the Son of Man will return on the clouds of heaven. And look at how Jesus ends his section in Matthew. Matthew 24, 34. It should be up on the screen. Truly I say to you, after all these things Jesus has just said in Matthew 24, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And it seems that Jesus believed that this would take place, not some date, thousands of years down the line, but before the generation that he was speaking to was going to die. 
The apostles seemingly believed and taught this too. Romans 13, 12. Paul says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. That same phrase, at hand. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand. Hebrews 10, 25. The writer says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. James 5, 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The book of Revelation says the same thing, both at the beginning of the book and at the end. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. Revelation 22.10, right at the end of the book of Revelation. And he said to me, the time is near. This warning from Peter is an urgent warning. He's saying to the church, I know you guys, you've suffered a lot. It has been really tough. And I know you've been battling in your marriages, in your workplaces, your communities and churches, but things are just going to get tougher for now. The end of all things is at hand. So what happened? The church really did believe that these things were going to occur, like immediately, in Jesus' lifetime. And we walk outside today and we look out and there's the moon. It's still giving its light. We see the stars. They haven't... They haven't um, you know, they haven't fallen down to earth. The sun is still shining. As far as we can see, the world hasn't ended. So what gives? What's happened? Is Peter wrong? Are the apostles wrong? Is Jesus wrong? Now, you ought to feel a great amount of trepidation when you start saying things like that. So we need to feel, we'll be asking, well, what is going on? When we hear this kind of language, the best thing for us to do is let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let the Bible tell us how we have to deal with this text and not come to it with our own presuppositions, with our own thoughts, with our own frameworks to try to dictate what we think the text is saying. And Jesus, when he's speaking in Matthew 24, and he's talking about the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from heaven and the sun not shining, he's actually quoting from the prophets in the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah 13.10. And the prophet Isaiah is declaring destruction over the city of Babylon, which we all know happened in history. And he says this, verse 10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be as dark as its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Strong, vivid imagery describing the destruction of the Babylonian Empire. And that is exactly what happened. The city of Babylon fell in one day. You can read about it in the book of Daniel with Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. Or Ezekiel 32.7 prophesies the same way over Egypt. And he says this, when I blot you out, that's Egypt, I will cover the heavens and I will make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And what happened to Egypt? Destroyed. Why is Jesus quoting these prophets who declared such vivid images of the destruction of these nations? Well, Jesus is flipping the script and he's using language that was designed for the pagan nations and he's applying it to his audience who were the Jews. He says, great would be your judgment. And to understand this, we need to understand exactly what Peter means when he says all things. Because he's using the exact same language we find that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. He uses the same Greek words. And so this helps us know what Peter has in mind. In fact, 
Peter himself asked this question of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24, verses 1 to 3. uh, Peter at this time was one of Jesus' disciples, still, still is when he's writing it. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? This is Peter speaking right now. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples are walking along with Jesus and they see the buildings of the temple and they're country boys. They've been raised out on the lake. They see these amazing buildings and it's just like, whoa, this is an amazing city. Jesus, are you seeing this? Are you seeing these amazing buildings? And Jesus doesn't seem to be all that shocked by the grandeur of it. Rather than being impressed, Jesus instead proclaims judgment on the temple. He says, not one stone will be left upon another for he came to Jerusalem and found not a, welcome, a king's welcome, but a, king, a rejection of his rule, a crucifixion. He says the worship in the temple will cease. Uh, and, that, and this event greatly bewildered the disciples because they came to him later and they asked, and listen very carefully to their question, they said, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Do you notice how all of them are linked? The disciples knew that the judgment of the temple in Jerusalem was going to coincide with the Messiah ruling over the nations at the end of the old covenant period. Paul says as much in Hebrews 8.13. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here's what I'm saying. Jesus is primarily concerned about, in Matthew 24, not the end of all of this world, but rather the end of Old Covenant Judaism, the worship of the temple and the Mosaic Covenant we see are going to become obsolete and pass away, and it was going to become that way in a spectacular fashion. All that worship that took place in that temple, which continued after Christ rose again from the dead, was going to come crashing down, and that was going to be the last last kind of gasp of breath of that old covenant Judaism. But not only that, the whole city of Jerusalem was going to fall under the wrath of God. Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. You see throughout all the parables that Jesus tells, at the end, the judgment, the kingdom of God being taken away from them. It was going to be severe. The city was full at at this time that Peter's writing, full of the persecution of the church. At this time in church history, the Jews were responsible for the most murder and execution of Christians in their thousands. And Jesus warns them that this is going to be the case. You're going to be under harsh tribulation. Things are going to be really bad. The time came, Jerusalem would fall under judgment and God would vindicate his church. And it was going to happen before the generation who crucified Jesus passed away. Have a listen to Luke 21, verses 20 to 22. This is in Luke's version of Matthew 24. 
Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let, the, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And so the question that naturally occurs after we've read all these passages, did this happen? Did all Jesus said in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, did it take place? And did it take place near the time of when Peter is writing his epistle? Or are we still waiting for it? Well, an amazing event happened in AD 70, when the Roman general Titus gathered against Jerusalem during the Passover, when the city swelled to over a million people, a million Jews who hated Christ, and a lot of them responsible for the persecution of the church. Jesus warns the Christians, don't enter the city if you're in the country. Why would they want to go into the city? The Passover. Don't go in. Don't go in. Because any of the Jews, once the Romans surrounded the city, tried to leave the city, they would be crucified in full view of the city in a big long line surrounding the city so that wherever you looked outside the walls, there were the crucified uh, members who tried to escape. Why? Because the Romans were going to put the entire city to the sword. Do you know who escaped Jerusalem before this happened? Christians. Christians heeded Jesus' warning and they fled the city in massive numbers. And they fled into the mountains into a town called Pella before the armies were able to completely surround the city. And in this brutal, drawn-out siege, the Romans put the entire city to death and they destroyed the entire city so that it was a haunt. No one lived there anymore. They ordered the dismantling of the temple and removed every stone. That sounds like something Jesus says, doesn't it? See, the Jews who had so viciously attacked and railed against the church fell under a judgment worse than they have ever experienced in their 1,500-year history to that day. It was a harsh judgment for what they did, they did to Jesus and what they did to his church. And when Peter says, the end of all things, I don't believe he means the end of the world. I believe he means the end of an age the old covenant age. Because you got to understand that the Christians at that time, they're like, I'm following Jesus, I'm believing in Jesus, and they say that Jesus is this new covenant, but then I look to Jerusalem where all the Jews still are in wealth and prosperity and doing really well, and even when it gets a bit later, they get exempt from all the Roman laws requiring people to worship Caesar, but the Christians didn't get exempt from that. And it looks like the Jews have got everything going for them. Peter says, no, it's, it's coming to an end. The end of all things is near. Don't give in to it. The things are going to get dicey, not some time later, but right now, roughly from the time Peter writes this, in the next five years. That's a short time frame. But something so amazing is going to happen that seems so unlikely right now. Just trust God. Trust in Him because He is faithful and He will get you through. And so what do we do in the meantime? What does the church do in the meantime? If the end of all things, if this whole old covenant dispensation is going to come crashing down, what should the church be involved in 
when they know that things seemingly are crashing down around them. And Peter's going to tell them, and this is my second point, the church through crisis. We're going to read from verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. So here's what we ought to do. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, this is so applicable to us. These words are so applicable to us in our time, time and age because we may see ourselves going through crisis as well. And if we're going through crisis, this is what we need. This is the kind of church community that we need. And the first thing we need to do in times of crisis is to be watchful. We need to be self-controlled. We need to be sober-minded, careful in our conclusions and precise in our attention to world events. Jesus in Luke 21 prophesies that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, but then he gives this warning. Listen to the end of it. Luke 21, 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does he say? Stay awake, praying that you may have strength. Same language that Peter uses here. It's not the time to forget about your troubles, to be merry and lackadaisical because disaster is going to come swiftly upon the whole Roman world and especially the Jewish world. And so be careful, be vigilant so that you can escape this judgment and not fall into it. Pray diligently for wisdom. Pray ceaselessly for guidance. For if you are not self-controlled and you're not sober-minded, you will find yourself not only missing all those important events, you will be praying for trivial matters, and before you know it, you might get swept off into judgment with the rest of the Jews because you are not paying attention and you are not watchful, you are not sober-minded, you are not self-controlled. That's the first thing that Peter says in a church. Be watchful. Don't presume. Don't think that, well, as everything happened from the beginning of time, so it's going to keep happening. We're just, you know, everything's going to be fine. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Peter says, no, be watchful, pray. For the sake of your prayers, pray precisely for the right things that you need to be praying for. The second thing, he says, is we need fellowship. You can't do it on your own. You feel like, you know, times of crisis, what do we do? What do we do? When things get hard, what do you do? You, you get back into your family, your little family unit, and you batten down the hatches and you try to ride it out. But Peter says, don't do it. Don't retreat into your own little insular bubble. Stay in fellowship. Stay with everyone else. He says, above all. If you remember this one thing, Peter says, remember this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So you know when love has grown cold, when people keep a long list of grievances. They keep sins against their fellow man. Any church consumed with sin tallying is a church that will find itself scattered and destroyed when crisis comes. See, Peter says here, love is something that covers over sins. And it's a good way to know whether you're loving someone. 
If you find yourself in arguments with them or in your mind when you're thinking about them, bringing up one bad thing they did after another bad thing that they did that's so offensive to you and you could never possibly forgive them, but you have to forgive them because of Christ, but I'm not going to forgive them. That's how you know you do not love your brother because love covers over it. You have peace with them. Love is something that forgives, reconciles, and if necessary, pursues. A person who is known for their love doesn't give up on people straight away. They go after them. They're ready to forgive and to restore. They aren't afraid of conflict if the goal is making peace. See, love is so important to keep that fellowship, especially when things get dicey and stress levels rise. And people want to know, what are we doing? How are we getting through this? How are we going to do it? And stress levels are up and all of a sudden everyone's at each other's throat. Don't do that, Peter says. Third thing we need to do is hospitality. When true persecution comes into a community, we can expect a considerable amount of upheaval that takes place in the church. And how do you see it? Well, in the first century, and we can extrapolate that out of there, but the first century, people had to flee cities. They had to run. They had to leave, often, behind all their possessions, their homes and their animals and everything they had, and find themselves in another city with a bunch of people they don't know, But in there are Christians. In that city are Christians. And so what do you think the Christians running away from persecution do? They go to the church. And the word here for hospitality literally means, it's, it's an awkward word, it means stranger loving. Now, that's not what we want to teach our children, stranger loving. Uh, But what it actually means is people that you don't know. Someone that you don't know, but you still welcome them in because they need your help. They need your help. Christians will come to depend upon the church when they are fleeing in persecution for food, for warmth, for shelter. But Peter says, do it without grumbling because it can quickly cause us all sorts of complaints and annoyances when people are in our space and people are in our homes and we don't know how long we're going to have to keep them for and we don't know how long we're going to have to feed them for. When you yourself, you don't have much money, you don't have much food, you might not even have a room in your house to host a whole family who might be on the run. It could be quite taxing and quite demanding, but the early church did it, and the amount of wealth they have compared to the wealth that we have, we are so wealthy in comparison. And yet, you'd probably find us in the Western church less likely to open up our homes to those who need it. It can ruin often the little things that we have going on in our households. But Peter says, don't grumble, don't complain. For any little thing we do for them, ultimately we do it for Christ, don't we? It's exactly what Jesus teaches us. Matthew 24, we've just been talking about that, all of Jesus' predictions. But then Matthew 25 comes. And he tells this parable, and at the end of the parable he says this. Matthew 25, 37 to 30. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? That's where we get hospitality from. Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's no surprise that this passage comes after Jesus' warning of persecution. 
because this is what the church needs, to band together in solidarity. So the best way to do this is to be ready to do this kind of hospitality now. Be already doing it. Be already opening your homes. Be already hosting people and willing to make meals for others without expecting anything in return. To be welcoming people in and providing for their needs and enjoying their company. And should a time come when the church may need to move a bit more underground, we will be ready with our guest rooms. We'll be ready with our dinner plates. We'll be ready with our Bibles. And we'll be ready with our prayers and good cheer. Because we are a church who are ready to meet the needs of whatever situation comes upon us. So ask yourself, is your life suited towards hospitality? Can you help a person in crisis? Or is that just something that you really don't want to do? And you know if you had to do it, you'd be grumbling all the way. Peter says, don't do that. The fourth thing we need is to be using our talents for the good of the church. Peter says here, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, each of us have received certain skills and talents, abilities, inclinations, which God has sovereignly uh, divided among the church. All of us have it. You can look around at everyone here right now. They are all uniquely gifted by God for the service of His kingdom and put here for a purpose. They're not here erroneously. They're here because God sovereignly has decided that be the case. And Peter is saying we need to identify what those gifts are and then put them to good use for the service of others. And a lot of Christians wait in church for the pastor to come and identify whatever their skill set or gifting is, or even better, sign up for something up the front, you know, a little bit more attention, a little bit more accolades, you get a bit more patting on the back. And then hopefully that pastor who identifies it will then put them into good labor. And this is great if it happens to you. Like if, if that happens to you and the pastor comes along and he says, I've got the best ministry for you. I've got the best thing for you to do. Would you consider doing this? And you think, oh yeah, this is great. And you go and do it, great. But Peter's not saying this. He's speaking to you as an individual. He says, as each has received a gift, you are the one who has to steward this gift. And so you can't be sitting around waiting for someone to come and tell you, oh, you're gifted in this. Here's what you're gifted at. Here's what you're good at. You are the one who has to manage it. You are the one who has to put it to good work and you are the one who has to make a return on it. The church needs it because God didn't put you here to be a consumer but a servant and he put you here because he knew that you had good work to do in this community. And so how can you know where you are gifted? It's easier said than done, isn't it? If I said to you, where are you gifted? Some of you guys might be like, boom, 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 three things, here you go. And others of you might be like, I can't even think of one. I can't think of one. Well, you can think, it, think of it like this. You can ask yourself, what are you good at? That's not necessarily the most helpful question, but we'll start there. What are you good at? Even better question, what are you motivated towards? What, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you excited? What makes you think, yeah, I actually enjoy this. I'm going to keep doing this. When you are around in the church community, what holes do you notice? You might notice things that no one else notices. And you think, there's a hole there. There's something that I can do. There's some hole that I can meet. There's some need I can go and do something for. Uh, what grieves you the most when it's not done properly? 
when you see someone doing something and it's just not handled well, it's just not done well, you might, that might be where your gifting is. What gives you the most satisfaction when you do it? See, rather than waiting for someone to do this diagnostic work in your life, why don't you do it? Could be good for you. <laughs> you could learn a lot about yourself. When you meet that hole as a means to serve others, not to get accolades or recognition or approval, because Peter envisions a community that serve each other. And these needs extend beyond the church service. I don't want you to be thinking, oh, what can I do in the church service? Or what can I do during that time of fellowship? I mean, what can you do for the kingdom? What can you do for the church, both here and out? Because we all have significant roles. And throughout all of Peter, we see it's the ones who make the small, seemingly insignificant decisions of self-denial and godliness that, makes the most, that make the most impact. If you remember when we were walking through it and Peter's talking to slaves and their, and their masters, he's not saying to them, oh, do this thing and everyone will think, wow, this guy's great, or do this thing and you're going to get some honor. No, no one's really going to know. All the effort that you put in, all that time where you were mistreated and you still bore up underneath it. Or the wife who has the disobedient husband and persists in her holy conduct, even though no one's noticing it and no one's giving her a pat on the back and her needs and her no one's validating her, no one's making her feel loved and she still persists in it. Or the husband who does the same. Or the church leaders who do the same. They don't get recognized for it. But it's those small insignificant decisions of serving where you're gifted where you endure suffering and you earn a crown of glory because who notices? The Lord. And wouldn't you rather that audience than any other? The fifth thing I want to point to in this passage is in times of crisis, what we need is firm leadership and teaching. It's what you need in churches because you're not going to make it if you don't have firm leadership. He says here, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Those that teach and speak within the church, we know we know, of, know them as pastors or ministers, they have to speak with authority. They have to speak with wisdom. And God gives the churches different men who are especially gifted in the call of ministry. And these men are also gifted to teach. And these men need to fan this gift into flame and find themselves, uh, and, and sometimes... Um, they can find themselves either a, a, a good smell or a stench to a church in the midst of ca uh, catastrophe. In times of crisis, the worst men you can possibly want are weak men who don't make decisions, who equivocate when stress comes, when high uh, stress situations come up and they don't know what to do. You don't need teachers who can't speak confidently and make assertions based on their teaching of Scripture. Uh, Peter uses this word oracles, which might confuse you a little bit. But it basically means divine words. That's what the word means in the original Greek. Divine words, a divine utterance. People need the oracles of God, especially in times of crisis. They need the words of God. You think they're going to get through times of crisis if no one is preaching the word of God to them? We need it not muddied and confusing or nuanced and complex, but we need it plain and powerful and in the, in the normal person's English. It's such a shame when you have pastors who are ashamed of the Word of God and they come to the passage and they're like, oh, this is really awkward and weird of a passage, so I'm just going to skip over it. We don't need men like that. If they're ashamed of the Word of God, well, God will be ashamed of them. 
We don't need men who equivocate and vacillate, especially in times of crisis. We need bold men who teach with authority, just like Jesus did. We see the way Jesus taught. How did he teach? Mark 1, 21 to 22. And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want scribes in our church. I don't want dribblers in our church. I want men with backbone who read the word clearly, effectively, and with great care and diligence. These churches survive the refiner's fire. But the ones without strong leadership, you can start to see them fail the tests again and again and again. They haven't even made it to the crisis. You're already in big trouble. The sixth thing to remember is this. To do all things in the strength of God. Lastly, Peter says here, whoever serves, and this is any service, including the one who teaches or anything. He says, anyone who serves, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. See, in crisis, the last thing we want is to rely upon our own strength. God richly provides all the support, strength, and guidance we could possibly need as we are about the task of building His kingdom. What does this require of us? To be fervent in prayer, to rely on His provision, and to be zealous for good works. Think about it. Can a church like this survive a crisis? Who are doing all these things that Peter says, who have strong leadership, who are serving in the strength that God provides. I don't know about you guys, but I want that community. If I'm in any time of crisis, if I'm in any time where things are going badly, my life is threatened, my future is threatened, I want to be there. And a church like this can and will survive any crisis. And we've seen it all across human history. Do you know who survived? The church is Peter was writing to. Do you know who else survives? People even in this day, like the underground church in China, who practice all these things that we're just reading. These churches show that Jesus Christ is their Lord. He's the ultimate ruler over all. They, they love Him more than any of these things. They love Him more than their happy life. They love Him more than their possessions. They love Him more than their visions and dreams about how the future ought to be. They love Him more than all these. And that leads me to my third point, the unshakable dominion of Christ. Peter says right at the end of our passage, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the cry of Christ's church. Glory to God alone. All these things that Peter has said serve to bubble up and overflow into God's glory. And when a church loves each other and when a church preaches God's words truthfully and it's not ashamed of it, and when the gospel is proclaimed and a church fosters healthy marriages and it teaches the faiths of the next generation and bears up under suffering that is thrown at us by the godless, and when all these things take place, and Peter says here, we are glorifying God on all cylinders. 
He says, in order. We are showing the world that He is the most splendorous, magnificent, excellent, brilliant and wondrous being and that no inbuilt human passion or pressure from this world or lie of the devil is going to get in the way of our love and adoration of our God. He is above all. He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. To Him belongs all things, whether on heaven or on earth. And to Him belongs our highest praise, our greatest affection, our utmost loyalty, our greatest hope and our supreme obedience. And when someone comes along and asks, why are you doing all this? Why are you suffering like this? Why don't you just say the thing? Or why don't you just denounce this thing? Or why don't you become like these people over here? We can say, because Jesus is better. He's better than all things. He is our highest treasure. He is our hope. He is our Redeemer and our Savior. And to Him we owe everything. And He has given me every blessing. He's given me every gift. And He's given me every joy. Whatever I need to go through, I will for you, Jesus. It's the cry of the Christian. Because we have a rock-solid hope. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. How good. This is the church in crisis, but the church triumphant. Don't fear, don't grow anxious, don't grow stressed at whatever is happening in the world. For if we do these things, we will stand and God will be much glorified. Let's pray together. Our Father, we admit how concerning it can be when things happen across the world, when we hear of our brothers and sisters who are being murdered for the sake of your son, Jesus. We see people in countries that are so dangerous to name the name of Christ. And then, Lord, to our astonishment, we see, even in our own country, things getting worse and worse. And, Lord, how much we lament what is happening in Victoria and how much we stand in solidarity with all those Christians that are there who may find themselves in prison for believing the Word of God. And, Father, we know that these things may come to us, But whatever we endure, whatever hardships may come to us in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we will have a community that is robust because it is founded on your son, Jesus, because it is built upon the stone, upon the rock, that cornerstone upon which you build your church. And we know that nothing can shake it, nothing can destroy it, because it is a kingdom that is unshakable. And Father, whatever sufferings we must endure, I pray we would do it with glad hearts and rejoicing, knowing that you will triumph through us, And that this suffering is not meaningless, but it will produce a weight of glory. I pray for all my brothers and sisters who may fear suffering as it may come, but I pray, Lord, that their attitude would change, that they would see it as a great opportunity to suffer for their Savior whom they love. And we praise you, Lord, for this church. And I pray, Lord, that we would press more and more together in fellowship. We would press more and more together in joy. That we would be a community that really uh, reflects the love of your Son. We pray in His name. Amen.